0: It's Friday, July 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Supreme Court has issued a split ruling on President Trump's tax cases. The court ruled that Manhattan prosecutor Cy Vance has the legal right to subpoena records from Trump's financial institutions, but rejected the House's effort to get similar records. Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs correspondent at Politico, joins us for why you still won't be seeing Trump's taxes anytime soon. Next, President Trump is pushing harder for schools to fully reopen in the fall. He has slammed the CDC guidelines on reopening and also threatened to cut funding from schools that don't open. While children are only half as likely as adults to get infected with COVID-19, there is still a lot of concern over how to reopen. Laura Meckler, national education reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for the fight to reopen schools. Finally, some marriages are starting to buckle under quarantine and strict lockdowns. In some households, months of monotony and spending too much time together is exposing bad behavior and exacerbating underlying problems most likely there before the pandemic began. Marissa Casino, senior editor at Washingtonian, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: In the case involving the New York prosecutor The Supreme Court basically rejected the arguments that the president had put forward that he was essentially absolutely immune, not just from criminal prosecution, but really from anything related to a criminal prosecution.
0: Joining us now is Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs contributor at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Josh.
1: Hey, happy to be here, Oscar.
0: The Supreme Court on Thursday issued a split ruling on the president's tax cases both rulings were seven to two, and they ruled that Manhattan prosecutor Sy Vance has the legal right to subpoena records from President Trump's financial institutions. On the other side of it, however, they rejected the House's effort to subpoena similar records. Josh, tell us a little bit about these two rulings.
1: The president probably did better with the ruling relating to Congress than he did with the one relating to the New York prosecutor. In the case involving the New York prosecutor, the Supreme Court basically rejected the arguments that the president had put forward that he was essentially absolutely immune, not just from criminal prosecution, but really from anything related to a criminal prosecution. In other words, any type of subpoena or investigatory step. It was a very, very broad argument that the president's lawyers put forward. You could even argue that it amounted to a suggestion that not only he was immune, but his friends, family members, and associates were immune because. If he had records that might pertain to their guilt in some criminal offense, those would be beyond the reach of the prosecutors under the president's lawyers' arguments. And the Supreme Court fairly resoundingly rejected that position, saying not only that there was no absolute immunity, but they wouldn't even require the prosecutor to show an unusual or heightened need for these records before digging into them. On the other hand, they did say the president is free to make more routine kinds of arguments that this is too burdensome or that these records are subject to some sort of privilege. So the timeline here, both for the New York case and the congressional case, is interesting. Uh, Although the president suffered, I think we'd have to say, at least a, a partial defeat today. Whether these records are actually turned over to anyone before the election and whether there are any real consequences for that, I think is sort of unclear and maybe doubtful in the wake of this ruling.
0: In the Manhattan case with District Attorney Sy Vance, even still, he won't be getting those records right away either. He still has to go back to a lower court and they have to kind of argue this whole thing again still.
1: And the other thing is that the congressional subpoena was probably the more expedited and more efficient way for this information to reach the public. Remember, in New York, you're talking about grand jury subpoenas. That information is usually treated as secret unless there's some sort of litigation or A criminal prosecution that flows from it. We know that prosecutors were looking at issues relating to taxes surrounding the president's companies. One of his former lawyers, Michael Cohen, made some claims that there was some effort to illegally minimize tax bills through fraud. And we we think that and other things are being explored by prosecutors there. Obviously, if charges like that were filed in advance of the election, that would be damaging to the president. But even that is not exactly the same thing as having these tax returns, which he has fought To keep private released. On the other hand, if Congress was able to lay its mitts on these in the next four months sometime, I think it would be very short order before whatever information they were able to get is made public. And so the fact that the court threw a few more hurdles in front of Congress today getting this information, that may really settle that question in terms of this information coming out through that route before early November.
0: Talk to me a little bit about the justices themselves and how they ruled.
1: On both of the rulings, the Chief Justice John Roberts wrote them, and that's not uncommon for him to do in what he thinks may be the most politically sensitive rulings for the court. But it's clearly painful to the president to have Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch go along with these decisions. In fact, the justices who put up the greatest resistance today were really Justice Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas who precede President Trump's term in office. So it was not at all surprising the president came out shortly after this decision and complained bitterly about it. He called it a political prosecution. He said, courts have given broad deference in the past, but not me with an exclamation point in all capital letters. So he seemed really mad about these decisions, although it's interesting after initially painting them as kind of a defeat and going on kind of a rant against them. In the ensuing hours, the White House has tried to argue that the decisions aren't really a defeat for the president and that there's kind of a roadmap here for him to go into the lower courts and continue to put up a fight. They don't use the term run out the clock, but in practical terms, the result of that might be to run out the clock. When you think about when these decisions were released at this point, uh, nine days into the month of July, And the election being about four months away, it's just not clear that all the steps the Supreme Court has laid out here, either for Congress or for this New York prosecutor, will be complete by then.
0: So the bottom line, then, it seems that the president is not above being investigated, but the boundaries there aren't fully defined just yet. What does this mean going forward? Beyond
1: President Trump and even beyond his presidency, The rulings are kind of a setback, actually, for Congress. Congress has generally claimed that they have the right to subpoena just about any information they want if it's related to some legitimate legislative inquiry. And most courts, when they get a subpoena or a case about a subpoena like that, they tend to just sort of glance at it to say, well, is this related to what Congress is looking into? And they allow the information to be turned over or they require it to be turned over and the Supreme Court has said, at least in cases involving the president, and maybe, you know, they think the courts need to take a more searching look at what Congress is doing, what exact information it claims it needs, and whether the subpoenas might, for example, be too broad, maybe fewer years of tax returns might be sufficient to meet Congress's ends. And that's the kind of scrutiny, at least in recent decades, mm-hmm. that the courts have not done. So it'd be, I think, quite a change for Congress if every time they want to subpoena someone, they're going to have to make that kind of submission to a court. It might really cut back their oversight powers, not only over the executive branch, but over everything they try to legislate on across the country.
0: Josh Gerstein, Senior Legal Affairs Contributor at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Oh, happy to do it. Take care. They don't want to open because they think it will help them on November 3rd. I think it's going to hurt them on November 3rd.
0: Open your schools. Joining us now is Laura Meckler, national education reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Good to be here. I wanted to talk about schools reopening. As with everything right now, every discussion seems to be a fight on both sides. School reopenings is just in the same category President Trump wants schools to reopen fully in the fall. But on the other side of things, there's a lot of school administrators that don't feel like they might be ready for it. The CDC has issued a certain set of guidance. The president is saying that it's too strict. It might be too expensive, too tough, he said. Laura, tell us a little bit more about the fight to reopen schools.
2: Well, yes, indeed, it has become a fight as you know, I'm sure you were shocked to find out that there was fighting over something going on here in Washington. But anyway, how it's gone down is that the CDC and others have recommended that the safest way to bring kids back into schools is to use the same tools that we've all become so familiar with, namely physical distancing ourselves from one another. So the question is, how do you do that in school? How do you keep kids away from each other? And one of the things they suggest is that you set desks, for instance, six feet apart. Well, most school classrooms, if you've been in a classroom lately, you'll certainly know that there's not really space to put desks six feet apart and also fit all the kids. So what a lot of districts have been talking about doing is maybe bringing half the kids back on one day and then the other half are learning from home and then they switch. That's what a lot of districts are looking at. But that doesn't seem to be satisfying the president or his administration, at least some in his administration who are saying, no, we need to fully open schools and that that's what's best for kids. And, you know, they're right in a lot of ways. It is better for kids to be in school. There's no doubt about that. But the question is, you know, how do you do it safely?
0: Is there anything specific in the CDC guidelines that might be too tough, that the president might think is too tough, other than the social distancing? You know, we've been talking about this for some time. I know school districts in New York are saying parents should start getting their kids ready to wear face shields others are just thinking about masks, things like that. Is there anything in the CDC guidelines that might seem like it's too tough?
2: I don't know for sure what the president was referring to when he said that they were too tough, but what I think it had to do with was this distancing. Because even though that sounds like, oh, that's just one detail in a a fleet of details, in fact, it's a pretty important one because that's the one that is really school administrators are having trouble figuring out how they would get past that wipe while bringing everybody back into the building. So that's a big one. I mean, there are other things too. And these the CDC guidelines are not directives. They're just meant to be advice. Districts can take or leave to how to do it safely. So, for instance, they suggest running a buses with every other row empty so that kids are not too close in buses. But of course, if the bus route normally has the bus full, how do you do that? Do you need twice as many buses? Do you need twice as many bus drivers? One thing that schools are saying is, you know, we need more money if we're going to open. And it's yet to be seen whether they're going to get it or not. But those are some of the things. But I think that it's really that physical distancing, that social distancing thing, that I'm guessing is what he was referring to when he said it was being too tough.
0: I do want to ask about how school administrators and teachers feel about this? Because we hear a lot right now that kids really don't get infected with the same rates that adults do. I think they're only half as likely to get infected with coronavirus, but they can still transmit it. So how do teachers feel about being in the room with so many kids?
2: The teachers will tell you they want to be back, that they hate doing this remote education. They want to see their kids, but they're also nervous. Young people, children are not known to become particularly sick with this disease or to die from it. That's not true for some teachers are a lot older and some have compromised health conditions of varying types. So it's a lot more complicated for teachers and for staff. Some districts are giving teachers the choice of whether they want to work remotely or whether they want to be in the buildings. But that is a difficult piece of this for sure.
0: Laura Meckler, National Education Reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Sure thing. Thanks for having me. I think
3: a lot of these marriages may have ended at some point, regardless of quarantine. It's right. just that all of this time stuck together in the same house has made problems that might have been somewhat tolerable really, really impossible to ignore.
0: Joining us now is Marissa Cascino, senior editor at Washingtonian. Thanks for joining us, Marissa.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I
0: wanted to talk about one of the byproducts, I guess, of being on lockdown and quarantine for so long. People get frustrated with each other. They get frustrated with their partners being in such close quarters for such long periods of times. And some marriages are buckling under these quarantines. Marissa, you wrote a story. You spoke to a few people about how it's been a difficult go during the quarantine and their marriages have kind of ended during it, but they've had to stay in the same house because of lockdowns. It's been a lot of crazy different situations. Tell us a little bit about it.
3: That's correct. And I think even for the happiest, healthiest marriages quarantine is very trying. I mean, all of a sudden you're not just sharing a home with your spouse or your partner, you're sharing a workspace or you're trying to balance homeschooling your children with keeping, you know, on top of your full-time job. So I think that's important to stress is that this has been a tough time for even the healthiest best marriages. So the partnerships that were already on the rocks or maybe already had problems that were bubbling just beneath the surface, those ones have been particularly challenge during this time. I think a lot of these marriages may have ended at some point, regardless of quarantine. It's just that all of this time stuck together in the same house has made problems that might have been somewhat tolerable, really, really impossible to ignore.
0: These are just the times that we're living in right now. And as you said, the pandemic being on these lockdowns kind of exacerbates some of these underlying problems. And then you're stuck with a person. You know, a lot of people just can't pick up and go in the same way during normal time. So this is kind of reflective in some of the stories that you shared in your article. Share some of those stories that you had with some uh, some people.
3: There's one woman in my story. I talked to her lawyer. I didn't speak with her directly, but her lawyer, her divorce lawyer, heard from this woman who thought that everything in her marriage, for the most part, was fine. Like a lot of people, you know, in Washington or in, in big cities, she has a very demanding career, as does her husband. So when times were normal, they were often out of the house a lot. They were traveling for work. And even when they were in town, they were working long hours and just not seeing that much of each other. So now all of a sudden, they're locked down during the pandemic, spending 24-7 together together. And it turns out it's a lot harder to keep a secret when you're stuck in quarantine with your spouse. So this poor woman happened upon some direct messages in one of her husband's social media accounts from a longtime girlfriend that he'd had in, in another city. And in fact, he had practically a double life. So that's a very extreme scenario, of course. Yeah. But it's also the kind of thing that this weird sort of situation that, that we've been in with quarantine gives people the opportunity to discover. And maybe otherwise, this woman never would have discovered it or it would have been you know years before she figured out that something was really wrong in her marriage.
0: And then if the suspicion arises, you know what do you do to kind of figure it out? You have to do some sleuthing. Sometimes people are paying private eyes to investigate their spouse and they're paying a lot of money for that. You spoke to a few private eyes who were also kind of getting caught up in the mix of trying to figure these things out.
3: And these guys have been in in the private investigative business for decades, and they were telling me that they've never seen anything like this. A lot of the cases that they're investigating now started before the pandemic. So that's an important clarification, I think, that these spouses already had some suspicion before quarantine. But perhaps you would assume that because we're in the middle of a public health crisis, people would at least put their philandering and their cheating aside until the public health risk (laughs) subsides a bit. But it turns out that's not true. And that is what these private eyes found so shocking that even though we're all supposed to be social distancing, they're catching husbands, meeting up with girlfriends or just random people they've met on Tinder or on other hookup sites at hotel rooms. This one PI told me that he followed a mom to a park where she was meeting up with her boyfriend or her you know on the side and she brought along her kid so some of these stories are pretty (laughs) sad and and then in turn you know of course these people are out cheating on their spouses and then coming home and not only are they coming home and having been unfaithful but they're also now potentially exposing their partners and their families to coronavirus because they haven't been careful so it's like this sort of double threat like cheating taken to a different level.
0: And even the ultimate solution, the divorce and finalizing divorce is kind of elusive in all of this because the divorce cases have been delayed. You know, there's a lot of other things that have been put in the queue right now that need to be handled before that. And some people are saying that they can be delayed till as late as next year. So even that part of it is a difficult thing to navigate.
3: That's another stressor on top of all of this, because, you know, in normal times, if I discovered that my partner was cheating on me and I decided to get a divorce, that would be traumatic enough. But compound that with the courts are closed for a lot of run of the mill business like that. So my options are very limited right now, which means that my stress level is going to be going through the roof even more than it would in normal times. And I think that that will be a reason that we see, you know, a sort of divorce boom, hopefully when things return to normal sooner rather than later. It might not be that a ton of couples decided to get divorced during quarantine who wouldn't otherwise have made that decision at some point but it's like there's this going to be this backlog this logjam of people who would have been gradually going through the motions and all of a sudden once the courts open up they're all going to be pounding on the doors you know asking to hurry up the process because they've been stuck together (laughs) for so long it'll be like a dam has broken.
0: Marissa Cascino senior editor at Washingtonian thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much.